السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام على بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم تسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أجمعين سبحانك لا علمنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم بسم الله so we have now reached session number four in this five session series on this blessed treatise penned by Sayyid al-Habib Omar bin Muhammad bin Salim bin Hafiz, the title which is The Islamic Discourse in Religious Institutions, Its Current State and Future Development. Just a quick recap of what we've done up until now. In session one, we talked about the primary mission of religious institutions and touched a little bit upon the impact of their discourse. <clears throat> in session two, we went in a little bit more depth about how the integrity of the discourse is dependent upon the integrity of the individual, highlighting that all organizations, all institutions, ultimately are made up of people and are in the service of people. In yesterday's session, we talked about some of the principles of success in the Islamic discourse. And in particular, Sayyid al-Habi Omar highlighted some very important points which he extrapolated from the first verses in Surat al-Mudathir. And how these five principles is that they, when they are these qualities, when um, we have a share of them, is that it will help us impact others in a positive way and help us to fulfill this trust that we've all born for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so today, we're going to go a little one step further and talk about further developing the Islamic discourse. And this will be the content for today and tomorrow. And Sayyid Habib is going to mention 10 different steps that need to be taken in order for us to do this. And so, inshallah ta'ala, Allah tabarak wa ta'ala will open up our minds and our hearts to be able to understand these principles and to then also put them into practice. And to, what this means is, is that we take them seriously moving forward. We're aware of them and then we constantly work on their development as we move forward. And so he starts by saying, what is meant by the development of Islamic discourse is the way and manner in which it is conveyed and taught, being guided entirely by the teachings and directives of the Sharia. So, uh, in Arabic, وَمِنِ الْمَعْلُومِ أَنَّ الْمَرَادِ بِالْخِطَابِ الْإِسْلَامِ الَّذِي يُقْصَدْ تَطْوِيرُهُ إِنَّمَا هُوَ كَيْفِيُّتُ الْخِطَابِ no. So actually getting ahead of myself. So is that how it's conveyed and 
how it is taught. And this is, of course, very, very important. And this is happening whether we realize it's happening or not. And as new institutions, new organizations arise in various countries across the world, we're speaking primarily in a Western context in the United States of America, there will be new organizations and new institutions that arise. And naturally, they will be attempting to respond to the various challenges that are in that place. And even though there are certain challenges that are present that are similar wherever one lives on the face of this earth and the more that the world becomes a global village the more in that sense that the challenges are shared worldwide but then in that as well there's also specific challenges to particular peoples in particular countries in particular areas or peoples in general and that they might have a specific challenge based upon their uh, the nature of their country, the history, and so forth and so on. So this is a very broad and very large topic. But either anyway, we, we need to be aware that the Islamic discourse needs to be developed. In other words, we need to be very concerned about the way and the manner in which it is conveyed and taught. And one of the hallmarks of Ahlul Sunnah Jama'ah is you will always find them in the middle between two extremes. And those extremes, to the degree that they get on the further limits of those extremes, are what are deemed to be blameworthy, whether it moving in this direction or whether it be moving in this direction. In general, really, what we want is to find that balance in the middle. And we need to take into consideration our time, but we don't overly cater to our time by trying to change something that is fixed in our deen, for instance, just to mention one example. So we need to be aware of this. And the reason, obviously, we need to be aware of this is because if we're not able to take into consideration the challenges of any time, how then are we going to be able to teach that deen in a way that's going to impact those people and to equip them to be able to understand the time in which they live and to still maintain their practice and do what it is that they need to do. So what is meant by the development of Islamic discourse is the way and manner in which it is conveyed and taught, being guided entirely by the teachings and directives of the Sharia. The revealed texts and established religious principles themselves do not require any development and this is what is very important the religious principles themselves and that the thawabat dinia and the revealed texts and he says here the nusus they themselves don't require any development and that this is a very important point because this is where some people actually make major mistakes. And the fine line, there's sometimes a fine line between tajdeed, renewal, which is valid and must happen in every time, in between what you might want to call something like reform. And I know I'm opening up a big can of worms, 
And is, am I saying that all f reform is juxtaposed to tajdeed? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just using reform here in a that specific sense, pointing to the meaning of maybe that the way that that was done was done in a way that wasn't fully faithful to the tradition of that chains of scholarly transmission back to the Prophet Muhammad where something was slightly altered that shouldn't have been altered. Whereas Tajdeed <coughs> is that balance where everything is put in its proper place and this opens up a, another big topic. What are some of the characteristics of true Tajdeed as opposed to what you might want to term negative uh, reform? Um, so we need to really think about this because the revealed texts are the revealed texts and the established religious principles don't change in any time and there are a number of examples of that our basic creed our basic creed remains the same when you learn that basic creed it is the basic creed whether you're learning that a thousand years ago whether you're learning that 200 years ago or you're learning that today we believe in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we believe that in all of these that beautiful names that he has subhanahu wa ta'ala that remains the same in any given time rulings of the sacred law the five daily prayers remain a constant we don't change that and say oh we need to pray a little bit more let's add a sixth prayer no the five prayers are the five prayers and many of the forms of worship that we have that are examples of this they remain the same um, yes, there might be certain challenges that people have in relation to praying in a particular time, but that's precisely what needs to be done. How do you deal with those challenges while recognizing that the prayers remain? And the beautiful thing is here is the flexibility of the sacred law that helps us do this in any given time. Um, and likewise, the great um, principles of character, those remain. In no time are you allowed to have a disease of heart. That in every time you must have good qualities of character. Those things remain the same and they're fixed. And to the extent that we ground ourselves in these unchanging established religious principles is to the degree then that we will be able to deal appropriately with the time in which we live. So there's things that we simply don't change. So this is not, that's not what's meant here by development. And um, uh, he's going to go into more detail so that it's going to become clear. In order to elevate the level of discourse in light of our current challenges, we need to take a number of steps, of which the following ten are the most important. So this is what Sayyidi Habibullah is is putting forth and what <clears throat> are the important steps that we can take to further develop the Islamic discourse in the way that he's referring the first is those concerned in all established religious institutions should work together to correspond cooperate and carry out one or both of two duties and he's going to list the two duties the very first thing 
is working together, maintaining our solidarity and staying together at all costs. And this is one of the things that makes things so difficult, whether you're in a localized, in a localized way, some of the fighting between different organizations and institutions, or whether it's on a more global scale. When we're divided, we're not able to stand strong. When we can maintain all solidarity as an ummah, as multiple religious organizations, then we're going to be able to be <coughs> more effective. This is the very first thing that he mentions. And especially those that share in the following two main concerns. One, to bring the Muslims together and instill affection between them, revive their fraternal bonds between them, and rectify their affairs outwardly and inwardly. So they're serving the community. They are involved in the rectification of the community and so forth. This is that when an institution, an institution carries that concern, as well as the second one, this is especially the case of this need to work together. The other is to show the true nature of Islam with its beauty, majesty, and perfection to everyone whom we are able to reach out of mercy for humanity in order to fulfill our covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, whether they have, they're focusing on one of these concerns or both together, as he then says, it is incumbent upon every institution that carries out both or one of these two immense duties to strive and hasten to communicate, cooperate, and collectively discharge these responsibilities. This is one of the most important foundations for the development of the Islamic discourse. And so much could be said about this. You could go into discussions about networking and the importance of networking and everybody focusing on a particular area and if something is within their area, they help and if it's not that they that seek assistance from somewhere else or if it's in relation to people, if they don't feel they can cover the needs of someone or just partially cover the needs of someone, they help them in the way they can and then they send them to some, someone else. And this is important and, I, and I've seen beautiful examples of how this works. And um, when you have relationships with other people and there's trust and you work together, you might have people come your way that you might not really fully be able to help. So <clears throat> what do you do in that instance? You should find someone that can help them if you're able to do so. And then if you're able to send those people to somewhere else, they might get their needs met and vice versa. There might be people that go to other people that they might not be able to fill their needs, fulfill their needs fully. So they send them your way. And then we work together because people have different backgrounds. They have different levels of understandings and they have different comfort levels and they fit in in different places differently. So this is the first principle, learning to work together and getting back to something that was said earlier. We shouldn't see other people that are working in the realm of da'wah with us as a threat. So when it comes to the doing like a SWOT analysis, yes, you need to understand your strengths and you need to understand your weaknesses. And framing it though, the latter two as opportunities and threats, maybe we'd want to frame that slightly differently. Um, that the opportunities, yes, are 
the different ways that we can serve. But we don't see other people as threats. We don't see other organizations, other individuals as threats. And when you really understand how much work needs to be done and how many different ways that you can serve in all of the different fields that require people to roll up their sleeves and get to work, you come to the conclusion that simply it not only does not make sense, but it is one of the greatest pitfalls of all to fall into this pitfall of pivoting against other organizations and that trying to outwork them or outperform them or outmaneuver them and things of this nature. This <coughs> not only wastes a lot of time, it can have very harmful effects as well. So, working together. And then we get into the second. So he says here, Religious institutions must seek the participation of prominent people who are committed to do good to good and sincere to assist in the aforementioned duties. They can assist through their websites, projects, suggestions, speeches, writings, visits, and whatever other ways they are able to contribute. This is what we ask of them, and we request them to respond this, to this important obligation and critical need. Okay, so um, uh, <coughs> now, so one of the important things that we can understand here is, is in Arabic it's what's called jah, and jah is how you're known in society, so your reputation, your social renown. And one of the things that we're supposed to do is what's called tashkhir al-jah. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you a position amongst people where people regard your opinion and they respect you, you have an obligation upon your shoulders to use that for the benefit of people, of individuals and of groups. And so tashkhir al-jah is you using your reputation for the betterment of people. Now, we have to be aware of this because it is very easy to use your standing and your reputation for your own ego, for the lower aspect of yourself. And the fine line there is, are you doing something that brings you benefit or is it for the people? And if it relates to your own desires and gratifying your wants and taking the form of wealth and other types of things, then this is a red light and a red flag and something that needs to be rectified quickly because it's one of the quickest ways that we can harm ourselves if we've been given standing amongst people is to use that standing for our own lower, the alone, our own desires and the lower aspect of ourself. But if you use your reputation to help other people and by you supporting a cause that people know that you support that cause, so they're going to support the cause. Or by you calling, uh, be bringing awareness to a particular topic that other people all of a sudden take that seriously. And that you give your wealth somewhere and then it's a means for other people to give their wealth somewhere. Using your reputation in this way 
is exactly what we're supposed to do. So uh, this is very important. And so having relationships with individuals that are prominent and that are sincere, and the word he uses here are muslihin, and that these are people that can bring about benefit. And so to remain in touch with them and to work with them in a number of different ways, this is very important to strengthen the da'wah of the Prophet Muhammad And this helps establish the Islamic discourse. And so if you think about this, imagine if we had in, for instance, the countries in which we live, multiple people in so in the United States of America, in, in multiple states, in multiple cities, and these people are loosely affiliated and they know that we keep in touch with one another, they know that we support one another, and they know that in general we have the same outlook and we have the same general positions on things, allowing for the diversity and allowing for various levels of scrupulousness and conservatism and so forth. Um, we're not going to all be exactly the same all throughout. When we, when we do this, this strengthens the community as a whole. Because those individuals that are in a different state and they see the connections they have with someone else in a different place, it gives them clarity that this is how things must be. And think about the opposite, where <clears throat> you have someone who's, in a sense, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> we have someone who's, in a sense, displaced. And they live far from the community. And so much of their access is online. And they go online and they see this array and variety of different approaches and a variety of different opinions. This breeds confusion. So this is really important, is that people work together. And people that are prominent, people that are that well-known, righteous, and scholarly, and they're committed to good and sincere, that to doing good and to being sincere, is that everyone works together to assist in this. So um, this relates to the first in some ways, because it's about working together here as well, but it's a specific type. And how is this done? They can assist through their websites, projects, suggestions, speeches, writings, visits, and whatever other ways they are able to contribute. And again, there's so many different ways that people are serving. They have, it could be through a website, it could be through a specific project, different programs that they're putting on, workshops, seminars. Uh, it could be that they just make suggestions and that they're advising. It could be that they uh, give some type of lecture or speech, maybe write something. It could be visiting one another. All of these beautiful things that can take place. And when this happens, when you're visiting each other, you're communicating with one another, you're getting different perspectives. This is extremely enriching. And this is one of the things that the people of knowledge tended to do and what we've seen our teachers do. Whenever they go somewhere, they always visit the local people, the local prominent people, the local scholars, those that are in charge of the religious institutions. They visit schools. They visit people in their homes, uh, the righteous, and so forth. This is, this is a staple part of their trips so that everything that is mentioned can transpire. 
And the more communication, the more that we're in touch with one another, the better it is for the, 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 the collective body of believers. So then, number three. They need to be aware of what is being conveyed and presented to the upcoming generation and, to, and those learning in their educational curricula. This is a big one. And this takes an enormous amount of time. Being aware of what is being conveyed and presented to the upcoming generation and those learning in their educational curricula. He's going to list a number of ways that these meanings are disseminated. Jum'ah and Eid sermons, religious programs on the radio and television, religious articles in newspapers and magazines, and books and other publications that speak in the name of Islam. Checking on their soundness and correcting anything wrong and inaccurate. So we need to be aware how, what are, the what, what are the tendencies of this particular generation? Are people coming in person to Juma? Are people now, for instance, in our case, oftentimes seeking their spiritual and religious experiences online? How do we do that? To what degree do we that cater to that and offer online as opposed to that try to encourage people to attend in person? How are we dealing with these tendencies? Um, and there's a lot out there that we can benefit from in terms of research done on these topics and on these matters that as Muslims we need to be aware of it and we need to have a balanced approach where we always realize the asal, what is the foundation that despite the decay and the decadence we have to still call people to but then to various degrees and different people are going to be working on different fronts we also have to reach out to where people are at. Um, and in this regard, I think um, you, it's, it's good to think of things as kind of like a funnel. And like at the funnel, at the, at the top end of the funnel is where you have like full-time Sharia study. And then there's various degrees after that where you have people that have become scholars and then seasoned scholars and then scholars, scholars. And then also somewhere in there is Tarbiya where people are receiving spiritual training from teachers. And then the funnel starts to broaden where you start to get into like year-long programs. And then as it broadens, you get into um, like quarterly programs. And then you eventually get into like weekend programs and then kind of one-off programs. And you get into your as it kind of comes out like this, you get into your conferences and your nasheed concerts, and then it kind of keeps going down where you get into like street dawah and just engagements with people and so forth and so on. Those are just examples. But the idea here is, is that we have to reach people where they're at. But let's say that we're doing some type of street dawah or it's some type of conference. People become impacted. They need to take the next step. Or then they might go to like a weekend program. And then they might go to like some type of, you know, multi-week program. And then they might want to take their studies more seriously and <clears throat> study for a period of time and so forth and so on. Um, but this is also, if we think of it as like a funnel, why it's so important to network. You can't be everywhere in that funnel. But you have to recognize where you're at in the funnel 
and work with people on both sides, those that are above you and those that are beneath you. And if you can't reach someone who's down here and you're somewhere up here in the funnel, then <clears throat> try to find someone who can. And then maybe that person will slowly move up then to take their religion more and more seriously and to take and, and to learn more and more as they progress. Um, so I think this is really important for us to understand this. And I went into a little bit of a tangent, but I will bring it back. We need to be aware of how the upcoming generation is learning their deen. And that relates to what is being conveyed, how it's being conveyed, and that the times in which it's being conveyed. And we actually need to spend time familiarizing ourselves with the frame that people are thinking in in our time. If we're not aware of what people are exposed to, how it is that they're thinking, how are we going to reach them? And again, there's going to be different degrees to which people reach out to people at different levels. And not everybody has to reach out to everybody. There might be certain people that their job is more of a scholarly function. And they might not have the ability to uh, reach people on the streets. And that's fine. Everybody has to work within the realm of their comfort zone. And we have to allow for the diversity and allow for different people to be working in different areas. But we all collectively have to be concerned about how this Dean is conveyed and how it's being presented. And again, we want balance. And that balance is a continuum. Within that balance of what could be justifiably con considered to be balance, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. And then naturally there'll be certain things that start to happen on either side that it's better that it move a little bit more towards the center. And um, that for those of us that are aware of different approaches that people have, we'll roughly know what I'm speaking of. And it's not befitting to speak of specific names of people or organization in this regard. We're speaking at the level of principles. So how does this generation learn? What is, how do we approach Juma? How do we approach the that Eid sermons, the religious programs, uh, different articles that are written and books that are published and so forth and so on? And um, making sure that what is said and what is conveyed is sound and that also making sure that things that are conveyed incorrectly, that perspective is corrected, having ways to do this. And again, for anyone who's working in the field and is involved in the Islamic discourse, um, it really is a necessity that we all have the humility to realize not one person has all the answers. And um, that sometimes you try out certain things and maybe, okay, you retract a little bit. Maybe that's not the best thing to do. And we need to benefit from each other and help one another in this. Not one person is going to have all the answers. And there will be mistakes that are made. But collectively, if we have that, what was mentioned in number one, where we're all working together, where we can come together to talk to, about things and to share best practice and benefit from each other, then we'll be able to address and redress some of the things that might have gone wrong in our attempts to serve. So he says, this has to be done by not dismiss, this, this has to be done not by dismissing the sacred texts that are misinterpreted by some groups who sever them from their true meanings and attach false understanding to them. Rather, 
it is achieved by explaining the sacred text's correct meanings and the principles upon which they are based, presenting them in a way such that the truth becomes manifest, falsehood is exposed, and there is no longer any room to brazenly misinterpret the text or play around with their meanings. We are bound by a tradition. The various scholarly, and I'm meaning tradition here with a capital T, not in the plural, which includes the various scholarly methodologies that are upright and that, uh, that are, have been established over the past thousand plus years that exist from east to west in the Muslim world, uh, that, that these people are the true bearers of, of Ahl al-Sunnah wa Jama'ah. And alhamdulillah, they still exist and they're still accessible from the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we're bound to this tradition in the sense that, that Sayyidi Habibur previously mentioned, is that the goal here is not to change the revealed texts and that to change the established religious principles or to reform them. No, it's to be faithful to those revealed texts and to the established religious principles and to root ourselves in them and in reality change the time in which we live. And yes, is that... Um, in that process, when we are aware of the time in which we live, um, that there are new concerns that will have to be dealt with. But this is really the challenge because this whole deen ultimately is built upon taslim. It's built upon submission. So these scholarly transmission, these scholarly chains of transmission, and the textual tradition that we have, that has been the means to preserve knowledge. And the responsibility is on our shoulders to appreciate it, learn it, and to understand how it works. When we root ourselves in it, is that we have to be faithful to these traditions. And um, I know I'm speaking of tradition in a very broad sense, and it probably would require uh, a lot more detail, but I'm just going to keep it general for the sake of time. Um, uh, but being faithful to it means is that you don't shy away from the sacred texts themselves. You don't shy away from some, the interpretations of some people. You clarify where the interpretations have gone wrong. You clarify the true meanings and what it means for someone in this particular place who might be in the Muslim world, what it means for someone who is in a different place and that's not living, for instance, in a Muslim country. And having the maturity to do that is what will allow everything to be balanced and will allow everything to take its proper spot. Now, here. This is to be accomplished within the specific groups as the responsibility of scholars who are competent, trustworthy, moderate, balanced, fair minded, and far-sighted. And so when, when he was speaking about sacred texts, I think I was just speaking of it more in terms of the textual tradition, uh, but, but actually the, the, the word that was used here was nusus. And um, uh, here that would specifically refer to verses of the Quran and to statements of our Prophet wasallam. And so um, again, that when it comes to interpreting the meanings of the Quran, when it comes to interpreting the words of our Prophet um, it's the scholarly chains of transmission and these 
that traditions that have been developed that form this broader tradition of scholarly interpretation of Ahlul Sunnah wa Jama'ah throughout the centuries and different places. Um, this is the balanced tradition that will help us to understand what the verses of the Qur'an mean, how to interpret them, what the words of the Prophet mean, how to interpret them in the most balanced way. And, and so there, there, there are principles there. And that Islam is coherent and it's complete. And when you comment on one verse of the Qur'an, you have to understand that verse in light of the other verses of the Qur'an. When you comment on the hadith of our Prophet you have to comment on that hadith in light of the established principles of the Qur'an and the other established principles in the Sunnah of our Prophet So the novice is the one who just goes in and sees a particular hadith or a particular verse and just comments on it based upon what they see, not taking in light the entire Qur'an or the Sunnah of our Prophet which is why we speak of these scholarly methodologies where there's been thousands of people who have looked at the various looked at the verses of the Quran and the hadith of our Prophet and over a thousand plus year period interpreted them, commented on them in the most balanced of ways, such that the guidance is accessible. SubhanAllah. 1400 plus years later, after the time of our Prophet even in for people that live in countries where, that are not ruled by Islam. So this is a blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that we, we, we have to be faithful to these nusus, to the verses in the Quran and the hadith of our Prophet and um, that rather we have to explain the correct meanings and the principles upon which they are based. So then that takes us to the fourth um, the fourth step. No. Respecting the madhabs of Islam and understanding that they are expressions of the breadth, perfection, and exaltedness of the pure sharia. They are the means for uniting within the vast sphere of the sharia and the basis for complementing one each other, assisting one another, succession, and cooperation, because they are unified by a common authority and source text. And um, what is understand here are the, the uh, madhabs of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah, uh, and when it comes to that, whether that that relates to Aqidah or the, that relates to Fiqh or whether that relates to that the science of Tasawwuf, is that there are different schools that uh, have preserved the sacred law of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and we have to be very clear about what those schools are, and when it comes to belief. You're referring to the Ash'ari school and the Maturidi school. When it comes to that fiqh, you're referring to the Hanafi, the Shafi, the Maliki, and the Hanbali school. And when it comes to the path of Tasawwuf, you are referring to those who trace their lineage back to Imam Junaid al-Baghdadi and the other early greats and the different that uh, paths that had come 
as a result of that. And that understanding that there, these are expressions of the breadth, perfection, exaltedness of the pure Shuddha. And they are means for uniting, even with their differences. They are means for uniting. So unity does not mean that just anything goes. Whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to do, just do, and we're all going to stay together. That's not true unity. Um, there, of course, are limits. There are certain things that are unacceptable, that are beyond what is acceptable. But within the valid differences, and again, this gets very detailed. We're keeping it very general at this point. Um, within the valid differences, those valid differences allow us to be able to come together and to unite. And this is all within the vast sphere of the Sharia. And they are the basis for complementing one another, assisting one another, succession and cooperation, because they are unified by a common authority and source text. So then finally, the fifth uh, affair here is having consideration for divergent groups and non-Muslims. This does not mean approving anything of falsehood, nor setting aside any of the truth. Okay, so um, when we talk about having consideration, the Arabic word is mura'ah. Um, this doesn't mean that you can ever approve of a falsehood. If something is wrong, if something is haram, if something is unacceptable, you can't ever say that it's okay. It's as simple as that. Nor does it mean that you abandon any truth. Nor does it mean that you set aside any of the truth. What it entails is avoiding blameworthy prov provocations. Anything that turns hearts against each other and other things that would cause people to have an aversion to the truth. Okay. So what it means is, is that you have consideration. You avoid dealing with people in any way that's going to provoke a response, that's going to create some type of fitna or some type of problem uh, that turns hearts against each other or anything else that would be done where people might have an aversion towards the truth. Um, so this is what is meant by having consideration. But again, as you can see, this is a balance and these are principles that we have to adhere to and it gets back to what was mentioned previously about being very careful about what it is that we say. Now, it is also achieved by turning away when it is proper to do so, choosing the proper method of engagement, and elucidating the truth in a way that helps the one being addressed and makes it easy for him to correct his understanding, remove his misconceptions, opening for him the door of true reflection and insight. So, that when you talk about interacting with divergent groups, people that... Um, aren't following the methodology of Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah um, and even dealing with people that are not Muslim. There's ways of doing so. And there's principles that we have to adhere to. These also include choosing the proper method of engagement. The proper method of engagement. And also, there's times where turning away is the thing to do. Not getting involved. Where you don't engage that particular issue. You don't engage that particular person or that particular group. 
Sometimes that's the right thing to do. And then sometimes there's an opportunity to elucidate the truth in a way that helps the one being addressed and makes it easy for him to correct his understanding. If that opportunity arises, you do so in the proper manner, in a balanced fashion. And then he's going to mention now a number of different verses from the Qur'an that help us understand what he's saying. So, say, O Prophet, I advise you to do only one thing, stand up for Allah individually or in pairs, then reflect. There is no sign of madness in your companion, i.e. the Prophet wasallam. Allah the Exalted has also said, Now certainly one of your two groups is rightly guided, the other is clearly astray. Say, you will not be questioned about our misdeeds, nor will we be questioned about what you do. Allah the Exalted also says, And when you come across those who ridicule our revelations, do not sit with them unless they engage in a different topic. Should Satan make you forget, then once you remember, do not continue to sit with those who are doing wrong. And Allah the Exalted said, and when the foolish address them, they only respond with peace. And he said, Subhanahu wa ta'ala, Do not eat of what is not slaughtered in Allah's name, for that would certainly be an act of disobedience. Surely the devils whisper to their allies to argue with you. If you were to obey them, then you too would become polytheists. Allah the Exalted has also said, Say, O Prophet, O people of the Scriptures, let us come to common terms that we will worship none but Allah, associate none with Him, nor take on one another as lords instead of Allah. But if they turn away, then say, Bear witness that we have submitted to Allah. In these different verses, we're learning different ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us to be. Allah the Exalted has said, said, they say, become Jews or Christians, and you'll be rightly guided. Say, O Prophet, no, we follow the path of Ibrahim, the upright in faith, who was not a polytheist. Say, O believers, we believe in Allah and what has been revealed to us. And what was revealed to Ibrahim, Ismail, Ishaq, Yaqub, and his descendants, and what was given to Musa, Isa, and other prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction between any of them, and to Allah we all submit. So if they believe in what you believe, then they will indeed be rightly guided. But if they turn away, they are simply opposed to the truth, but Allah will spare you their evil for he is the all-hearing, all-knowing. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, Be gracious, enjoy what is right, and turn away from those who act ignorantly. And he said, Glorious is his majesty, If they do not believe you, O Prophet, then say, My deeds are mine and your deeds are yours. You are not responsible for my actions, nor am I responsible for yours. He also said, subhanahu wa ta'ala, But if they argue with you, then say, Allah knows best what you do. And the Exalted said, Do not argue with the people of the book except in the best way, except with those of them who act unjustly, and say, We believe in what has been revealed to us and what was revealed to you. Our God and your God is one, and to Him we submit. So these are all examples, and um, each one of these verses would require um, a little bit more, in, it requires to go a little bit more in depth to understand the meaning, but this here uh, is mentioned. Uh, under number five, which is that how it is that we have consideration for divergent groups and non-Muslims and the very best guidance of all is the guidance of the Qur'an and the way of our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala bless us to bring these principles into our lives, to benefit us through them and bless us to fulfill this trust that has been placed upon our shoulders 
and to believe in Allah and to worship Him because He deserves to be worshipped, to remember Him and then to disseminate these blessed teachings and this truth and the revelation that was given to our Prophet Muhammad that we believe in to those that are around us and those that we have an ability to affect and to reach. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq and to do this in a manner that is beloved to him and that brings happiness to the heart of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.